Greetings, everyone, and welcome to the Cool Hand Grace Podcast. It's another week and another biblical passage that we will explore. Our goal is to gain insight and application from God's Word that can encourage us in our day-to-day lives. I'm Pastor Kurt Witzig, and on behalf of the College Ministry at Duluth Bible Church, welcome. Today, we will continue in Luke chapter 17, but in a rather unconventional fashion. Last week, we talked about the healing of the ten lepers and how only one returned to Jesus to glorify him and to give him thanks. This was found in Luke 17, verses 11 through 19. And before that, we had gone through all of Luke chapter 15 and 16, but we had skipped Luke 17, verses 1 through 10. And then having skipped over that last week, we, were now, we will now return to that portion, Luke 17, 1 through 10, as I thought I would skip that section and go on, but then I changed my mind as I repented, as we shall see. Now, this long dialogue started in Luke chapter 15 in the teaching session that began by Jesus way back in verse 1 of chapter 15. This was where Jesus, if you remember, was sitting and eating and fellowshipping with sinners and tax collectors, much to the grumbling and the complaint of the Pharisees who saw that and could not understand it. They thought Jesus was doing something wrong. And so Jesus addressed them with a series of parables explaining what he was doing and how their thinking about sinners and tax collectors was not correct. So he gave a story of the responsible shepherd who goes and seeks this one sheep that got away, and then the story of the woman who diligently searched for one valuable coin. She saw the value of it and searched diligently until she found that last coin. And when these two items were found, there was celebration by the shepherd and the woman in their communities. And a party was thrown in honor of the shepherd and the woman for their care and for their efforts and their success. And all of this then pictures how Jesus is in his own thinking toward these Jews who were of the Abrahamic covenant. We are part of the chosen uh, nation, etc. But they had gone astray, these sinners and tax collectors. But they were known by God, and they were pursued by him. Then he gave the story of a father who had a son who went far away, but then he returned, and the father races to embrace him and shows him his great love and restores the son, no questions asked, and followed this up by a big feast and a celebratory party in community again that was designed to honor the father's love and his willingness to restore the son. And when the older brother, the, 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 the other of the two sons he had, when he arrived on the scene, returning after another day's work in the fields, why, he's upset. He's the good one. He's the faithful one. He stayed here and stayed with the father and has worked and worked the fields, and he deserves this party. He's earned the right to wear the robe and have his friends over. So why is this party happening It should be to honor him, he thinks. It should be to celebrate me, the older brother, and my goodness, and how what I've done. And the parable ends with the father going out, seeking to woo the older brother, to join the party that's actually in honor of the father, and to receive the father's love and acceptance. 
And presumably the angry son does not do so. The story just ends, and we get the feeling that older brother thought he was ripped off. We move right into Luke chapter 16. Jesus then was teaching some things about money, primarily the value of paying it forward with your wealth, being generous, meeting the needs of those around you, and again, to the fierce resistance of the Pharisees, who disagreed with that, disagreed in total and gnashed on Jesus and just were harsh with him. This led to the story of the rich man and Lazarus and the great reversals and the unexpected outcomes. Again, what will be waiting those who reject God's word and his way of doing things. So the Pharisees again had it all wrong as they were clinging to their own merit and their perceived superiority to others. Then we got to Luke chapter 17 here this week in verses 1 through 10. This is the conclusion of all of this uh, since 15.1, this ongoing one long continuous session. The same audience, the same teacher. Jesus did shift his attention from the Pharisees at times to his disciples, but then back and so forth. And, uh, and then today we'll see the conclusion of all of this scene. Later, after this time, then Jesus, after what we're going to cover today, we would then see Jesus traveling, and that's where he runs into the ten lepers, whose story we talked about last week. So that's where that story fits as it relates to now. So our passage today finds itself structured in four kind of short sections. The first two are where Jesus is making further corrections about pharisaical thinking to his disciples and followers, corrections to help them avoid this wrong way of going about things. And the last two are more private, the last two parts, and they're between Jesus and the 12 disciples. So we begin reading in Luke chapter 17, verses 1 through 3a. We read, Then he said to the disciples, It is impossible that no offenses should come, but woe to him through whom they do come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he should offend one of these little ones. Take heed to yourself. Now, this is right after he finished the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And it's the same general audience, only now it's specific. He's speaking to his disciples. And again, one thing about Luke 15 and 16 is all that we saw there, almost all of it, was unique and only found in Luke. But now, in these first two sections here, we see some truth that is also given in Matthew 18. It overlaps as it, as it does here in Luke 17. So the theme of this first section is on offenses. And he says it's you know impossible that offenses should come, but woe unto him through whom they do come. Now, this material is also found in, in uh, Matthew 18, as I mentioned, verses 1 through 14. And uh, the word offenses, it's good to note, is the word scandalon, where we get scandal or scandalous. And it sometimes is translated in our Greek New Te- or in the English New Testament from the, that same Greek word as stumbling block. Now, a stumbling block is that which causes someone to go against their held beliefs or their convictions. For example, maybe you have a conviction as a b- believer in Jesus that you don't want to drink alcohol for whatever reason. And you're out with some friends and maybe some other Christians even, and, and several of them have a glass of wine with their meal. And you feel like, oh, I just really feel like I should not be doing that. That's my conviction. But either they pressured you or based on your own internal pressure, you just compromise your convictions and you had a glass of wine. Now, it's not sin, as we know from the Bible. That's not sin at all. The only sin related there with alcohol is when, you're, when there's drunkenness. But you might have that conviction, and therefore someone was setting forth a scandal on, a stumbling block before you because you compromised your own position and you went against your conscience or your belief. 
You know, maybe you're driving in inclement weather and it's a little snowy, uh, snowing, uh, snowing out, and you you think I'm going to need to slow down here, and you're slowing down. But maybe you're talking with someone and you're going to be late, or they think you're going to be late, or they just think, no, you should not do that. Don't be governed by fear. That's silly. You're just being, you know, you're not willing to die with your boots on and so forth, and try to spiritualize that issue in some way. And so now you have a conflict, and maybe you drive faster or you do these things because of that pressure, and that was a stumble block, getting you to change your position on something. So that's the idea, is that someone's leading you astray into a different way of thinking. And he says here, uh, woe unto those who are a scandal, scandal on or give offense to little ones. Now in Matthew in this account, um, there's actually children there. And, but here in Luke, there's not. So maybe we could say there could be referring to children or also we're just referring to those who are young in the faith or maybe even like uh, earlier in chapter 15, 1 and 2, the outcasts. Uh, because the Pharisees were always steering people wrong in their thinking and their uh, their standards and how they viewed things externally, etc. Well, anyway, um, he he says anyone who causes one of these little ones to have a crisis of faith, so to speak, or compromise their own convictions and values, etc., is causing them an offense. Now, the consequence of having your uh, millstone around your neck, etc., is obviously not literal. In fact, in the Matthew account, he went on in the same context to say, and if the eye offends you, pluck it out. Well, if we took that literally, we'd all be blind, wouldn't we, by now? So the point is he's saying that when you lead someone astray, like the Pharisees maybe were doing or anyone, um, that serious business has serious consequences. In fact, they might be like having mental torment in, uh, of the rich man and Lazarus just before this story. I mean, the rich man woke up in mental torment. He said, no, someone go back, tell my brothers, whatever, because our whole Pharisaical thinking and philosophy and lifestyle was wrong, and he's in torments. He's mentally anguished. He can't help them anymore. He's, he's on the wrong side of eternity. So he ends this little section with, take heed to yourself, and that ends this discourse unit. So best we pay attention to where we are at, not compare always to others, and really take into account what is God saying, and to the best of our abilities, really understand and f- allow the Word of God to shape our thinking. Well, we move on then to the second section, Luke chapter 17, uh, 3b through verse 4. And the topic now is going to switch to one of forgiveness. Jesus goes on and says, If your brother sins against you, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times in a day returns to you saying, I repent, well, you shall forgive him. This material is also found in Matthew 18 in the second half, where it's actually more related to um, to someone in the church and dealing with how a church handles someone that's expanded there. And also he has another parable there that's not found in in Luke that explains this principle of forgiveness about uh, uh, the servant who was was forgiven but then failed to forgive others. Um, In the parable there, Matthew, he goes on to show how, you know, 70 times 7 is not enough times to forgive. The idea is you're to forgive someone always. Now, the Pharisees taught that you only had to forgive someone up to seven times. And that's not just, you know, in a day, that's in general. And so Jesus emphasizes that by saying seven times in a day. And this is just his way of uh, colorfully saying always. And notice in the story, it's okay to, in his wording rather, he says, it's okay to rebuke your brother, but you also are to forgive him. 
Repent when he repents. The word for repent we want to understand is is metanoia. And that word simply means a change of mind. For example, I repented about covering this passage uh, on this podcast. I thought, no, we'll skip over it. I repented, changed my mind, and now here you are uh, having to go through this. So uh, what he's saying here then, the meaning of repentance is to change your mind. And we want to make sure we're clear on that today because repentance is really a confusing term, especially in kind of churchianity circles. It is explained or defined very often as repentance, a sorrow for sin, to have a lot of sorrow. I just so hate my sin. Or as turning and forsaking from sin, consciously walking away from it. But as we see the biblical term and how it's used, it isn't either of those. No sorrow is mentioned here in Luke 17. And here we have a brother who sins seven times in a single day. Clearly, we don't see a forsaking or turning away from. But no matter, in no matter what the case, forgiveness is to be granted. The confusion particularly shows up when someone is trying to share the gospel or talking about how you can go to heaven. And they'll often say you need to repent or repent of your sins. I'm sure you've maybe heard of that. And the implication is you need to have great sorrow for your sin, really regret them all, and even turn from your sin and be willing to forsake them. So this becomes like a prerequisite, something I have to do before I believe on who Jesus is and what he's done for me. But if that was the case, would salvation then be by grace? Or would I be earning it in some way by stirring up or having sorrow or willingness to turn away from? And how much sorrow do I have? If there was a sorrow meter, how do I know if I've had enough? I may not really regret all my sins. And so we see that dilemma that creates confusion then. The fact is, is you and I, we're all undeserving sinners. We're all guilty before a holy God. Who cares who sinned more or less or whatever? Just know We're not holy. We're not where God is at. And we deserve a consequence. And I and you, we can't fix this. But God loves us anyway. That's what's the good news. He loves us in spite of ourselves, sends his own holy son to come. We know the story of Jesus dying on a cross as a substitute for unworthy sinners, you and I. And God punishes Jesus and carries out his wrath as the consequence of sin lands on him who willingly takes it in our place. And then Jesus resurrects three days later, showing the payment was paid in full, and God is satisfied. So now Christ and God, they can offer us eternal life freely to all the world. Whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life, because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. So notice, in order to have this eternal life, there's no pledge. There is no promise. There is nothing you do. There's no uh, change of your behavior or whatever. No works, no rituals, and things you do in in a church even. That's why Ephesians says, by grace we are saved through faith. And that's not of ourselves. This salvation is a gift. It comes from God. And it is not of works, lest anyone should boast. So, There's no repentance there. Repentance was really a work. It's something that we have, something that we do. And it then confuses the idea of grace and the merit and the value of Christ alone and what he did. So, by the way, uh, is there a place for repentance? You know, as a child who is saved, who's come to Christ, you bet we can change our mind about a lot of things. We might repent of our sins as a believer. 
we might repent or change our mind about certain things we believe or or whatnot. Boy, it all fits there, but it's, but it's because we're a child, because we're involved in, in the family, because we're secure. But that's never how we become a child. That's never how we're born again. That's the difference. That's the distinction. To be born again, to be a Christian, is just to whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So, if you had to repent, you would have doubts, wouldn't you? You'd have a, some lack of certainty. Did I really repent enough? Am I sorrowful enough? Boy, I don't know. Was I? And we'd always be kind of evaluating. And you know, it's like, it's like, like Satan said in the garden, did God say? Always wanting to, for us to have doubt, to question certainty. When we don't have certainty and when there's some doubt, that's the work of the devil. So he wants us to really be questioning and doing that. You know, that's like, you know, fake religion, fake news, right? You can know for sure you have eternal life. No, 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 no. That's what he would want to do. So God, though, in his word declares it. And his word never changes. John 3.16 never changes. Ephesians 2.8 and 9 never changes. And we can be anchored there and know that these things were written unto you and I who believe in the name of the Son of God, as 1 John 5 says, so that you may know that you have eternal life. And I hope you do know that. Once forgiven, we're always forgiven. Once our sins have been paid for, they've always been paid for. For all time, they're gone. And God is satisfied. And now you and I have the basis to forgive 70 times 7, as Matthew said, or seven times in a day, as we see here in Luke. Why? Because I've been forgiven. I've been forgiven every time before the Lord. Repeated sins, frequent sins, big ones, little ones. I have been forgiven. What grace. And the Lord wants to now generate that through us toward others. Well, that brings us to the third section, Luke chapter 17, verses 5 and 6. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be pulled up by the roots and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. The theme here in this third section is faith, and the apostles now are the ones who are addressed, not the disciples. So here's a little shift. Now we see he's talking to the apostles for this section and the final one, and the apostles are the twelve. The twelve. Uh, the disciples earlier mentioned, and I mentioned are, are normally the twelve, but also some others, some of the other people that were following Jesus, uh, and maybe not as, um, as frequently or whatever as the twelve, but they were followers. But now we're talking to these twelve, and he's shifting to a more private discourse, which is fitting at the end now of this section that has gone on since chapter 15. Why are they asking, Lord, increase our faith? Well, again, this passage is also found, uh, or some of the things that are in these few verses, in Matthew chapter 17. And so, therefore, there you could see um, that, that the apostles had been given power and authority to go and to preach and to do things and even cast out demons. And there was one occasion in Matthew 17 where there was a, a, a man who had a son, and they couldn't cast demons out of the son. And he said, I brought him to your, you know, your disciples, and they couldn't get him out. So then Jesus cast that, that did a miracle. And afterward, the disciples said, why is it that we couldn't do it? And even in the text there, the emphasis was we. Why couldn't we do it? As they were somehow, and Jesus really was blunt with them there, he said, because of your unbelief. Because subtly they had thought that they were able to do this, and it was because of them. But the fact is, no, it's not them. The, it was God working through them. So notice what Jesus then says here. He says, if you have faith, this is a condition as of mustard seed, even just a little bit. 
is the idea. Then, and this is a first class condition if it's true, you can say to the mulberry tree, be pulled up by the roots and be planted in the sea. The mulberry tree is a tree that has a lot of complicated root systems, and it would all be delicately pulled up and replanted in the sea, and it would continue to grow. Now, that's an extreme thing. And, but he said, if you have faith and you do, then you can say to the tree, but they weren't. So this was a present reality. You have faith. Yes, we have faith as a mustard. You know, if you had faith as a mustard seed, they have faith. But they're not saying this. It's a present unreality. And then another, condition, another result of this condition is then the tree would obey you. So these are some things that were, what he's saying is, if you have faith of a mustard seed and you do, these things are available or could happen. Now, the point is not that they're going to do great and huge things. The point is, as the object of your faith is what counts. It's the object of your faith, the Holy Spirit and God who created everything. He can do these things. And if you're asking in accordance and in sync with him, then you, these things happen or can happen. And the faith then isn't the issue, your faith and how great it is and so forth. The issue is the object of your faith and that God can do these things. So for us today, you know, back then he told these uh, these disciples uh, that they were going to go into different communities and preach and have things happen. For us, he's told the same, but it's centered on the gospel and the commission of going out and preaching the gospel to all the world. So we're not here to, you know, we're not told to do these exciting, amazing things by way of uh, miracles. But we have the truth of the Word of God. We're stated to go out and, and plant churches and have preach the gospel and see people get saved and so forth. And we have uh, the, the faith. We can understand that God is behind that faith. God is empowering those things. God's will can be done, and we can pray in faith, and we can ask in faith. And so just think, as we apply this to the gospel of salvation, when someone gets saved, when you and I get saved, I mean, we are cleansed of all sin and forgiven, and we are given eternal life and have the Holy Spirit in us, etc. That is more fantastic than a mulberry tree being pulled up and planted in the sea. For you to go to heaven forever is a greater miracle and an amazing thing than that. And even as we think of the Christian life and just knowing promises and walking by faith and seeing our identity, our place that's in Christ, our security, this is amazing. And these are astounding truths that are even again surpassing uh, some of the incredulous things that we, they, we saw them doing. So faith, let's believe those things, take them by faith and continue to have faith in God's working and God's grace and God's power in our life working through us. So finally, we get to the fourth section now, and this is a little parable. We read this, and which of you, Jesus is concluding this long section now, saying to his disciples, which of you having a servant plowing or tending sheep will say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and sit down to eat? But will he not rather say to him, prepare something for my supper and gird yourself as a servant and serve me until I've eaten and drunk, and afterward you will then eat and drink? Does he give special thanks to that servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I think not. So, likewise, verse 10, when you have done all those things which you are commanded, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done what was our duty to do. So the theme here in the fourth section is on service. Now, to set the stage a little bit, I'm going to play a little bit of a song here uh, about a minute from a woman named Shirley Temple, excuse me, Shirley Caesar, and a song called No Charge. My sister's little boy came into the kitchen one evening, 
while she was fixing supper and he handed her a piece of paper he'd been writing on and after wiping her hands on an apron she took it in her hands and she read it and this is what it said for more in the yard five dollars if I'm making up my own bed this week one dollar for going to the store 50 cents and playing with a little brother while you went shopping 25 cents taking out the trash one dollar and for getting a good report card five dollars and for raking the yard two dollars total owed 1475 so he wrote up the invoice we're gonna stop there but uh so the little boy just wrote up an invoice for all the things that he did like taking out the garbage getting a good report card uh, raking the yard so we get to our parable as we just read and we see that this these questions are asked and this is jesus's way of combating pharisaical thinking and expectation again here uh, as it relates to being a servant so he's still talking to the 12. We read he has three rhetorical questions that Jesus has when he does this. And he says, which one of you having a servant when he comes in from the field, you say to him, you sit down and, and eat? Well, no one, no. Instead, you would say to him, you prepare my dinner and so forth, and then you can eat. And that's the question everyone would say, yep, that's what you would do. And does he give this special thanks and so forth because he's done what was expected? No. And so those are the questions. And he says, uh, when you've done those things expected, this is what you say. Say, I am an, we are unprofitable servants. We have done what was our duty to do. The word unprofitable is kind of uh, a hard word to translate in the essence, but it doesn't, it doesn't mean like you're really bad. It means you're just not worthy of any particular or special praise or commendation. You know, because nothing's been gained by them, what they've done for their master. The master has got no more than what he is due. So the point is, is that um, the, the man can make no just claim, the servant can make no claim for having done more than what was due. He just did what he was to do. Now we can finish this up with some applications here as we think of this principles here of serving here that Jesus wants to bring out. We can first link this to the Pharisaic ways in general, and especially as we think of the older brother at Luke chapter 15. Think of him. He's just like this boy in this song. He's got this thing with his father. For serving you all these years, you owe me this. And for doing this, I should have a party, and I should have the fatted calf. And for doing these things that I've done and have stayed here and served you and never transgressed. You see, this was how the Pharisees think, dutiful, earning blessings, doing their part. It's a pecking order. They're earning. Their superiority is gaining, and they are worthy. And so he thinks he deserves a goat. He thinks he deserves a party. When we're doing like this boy, and we're adding up our service and saying, okay, God, $14.50, it's for what we're expected to do. And we think we deserve a party. This older son in the parable in Luke 15 is perfectly reflecting the wrong thinking that Jesus is combating here through this parable. You know, he's not a servant, the older brother. He's a son, but he's operating and he thinks like one. He's got his invoice and he's got what he thinks is due and what is owed to him. The younger brother came home remembering the story, demanding the father would make him a servant and the father would have none of it. And here the older, older son already was, acting totally like one.
Well, another application that we can see how Jesus is exposing that kind of thinking, but we can even apply it to sin in our life. You know, we can think this way toward the Lord as a, toward, you know, Jesus. Hey, look, I should get some special something, yay, because I'm not sinning in a certain way. I've quit doing this, or I didn't do that, or I'm not doing what my brother or sister does. And we think God should be in terms of praising us because we didn't sin. We should get some reward, some extra because of that. And yet not sinning, that's assumed. That's expected. I mean, think about it. Does the wife thank the husband for not cheating on her each day? Do you praise your child for not stealing money from your purse or your wallet? No, that's no reward for that. You know, when we receive, in the Christian sense, praise or a reward from God, it's going to be for that which he accomplished through us, something that was of uh, supernatural in origin and source. As we learn to walk by faith, he's able to work things through us in an outward way. But not for not sinning. There's no reward in that sense. So I go back to that Shirley Caesar song. We won't play it, but the the mother of the boy then thought about it, and here's what she said. She picked up a pen of the lyrics and turned the paper over, and this is what she wrote. For the nine months I carried you, holding you inside me, no charge. For the nights I sat up with doctored you and doctored you and prayed for you, no charge. For the time and the tears and the costs through the years, there is no charge. When you add it all up, son, the full cost of my love is no charge. For the thoughts, the nights filled with gray and the worries ahead, for the advice and the knowledge and the costs of your college, there is no charge. For the toys, schools, and clothes, and for wiping your nose, there's no charge, son. When you add it all up, the full cost of my love is no charge. And then the song ends with the last stanza. Well, you know, when I think about that, I think about the day that Jesus went to Calvary and gave his life as a ransom for me. When I think on the words, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature, I like to think about the very minute that he shed his blood and my debt was paid in full. And I want you to know today when you add it all up, the full cost of real love is no charge. And so notice our thoughts are put toward real love. We connect this in our service to unconditional love and to a relationship we have with the God of this universe who loved us and we know him and we can personally stand in his presence and worship him and thank him. This is what motivates our life. This is what causes a wife to take care of a sick husband for years or one who stops going to college to meet a family need and stay at home or whatever, or a parent who turns away from a career or job opportunity so they could be at home with the kids because there's maybe some, uh, some turbulent times coming. Uh, this is what causes someone to put down the smartphone and to be present with their family in the evening. This is this love, this relationship. This is why you might save and save and plan and buy a big surprise gift for the one you love, and so on. This is what motivates us. And the Christian life is the same. 2 Corinthians 5 14 reminds us that the love of Christ compels us, motivates us. We love him, the Bible says in 1 John 4 19, because he first loved us. It's response. It's love. It's appreciation. It's like the leper last week who returned. He wasn't going to just go to some priest and go through some ritual and some external pecking order and whatever. Uh, he was going to be go with uh, radical love and go back and say, Lord, thank you. I want to glorify you in a loud voice. And he bowed down and he thanked him. 
We're compelled by a relationship, by a person. And so we think even some grace teaching sometimes today would say that God is the one who pays us, and they like to interpret like getting a reward is like being paid, and maybe not for not sinning, but for our service. And so it's just like this little boy. We write up an invoice. We have an older brother expectation, and this negates grace, and it negates relational motives. And so I ask you, friend, what if there were no rewards? What if God didn't pay you anything or reward in any way? Would you still do the things you do? Would that change your desire to serve him? Are we not the recipients of his love at no charge? Are we not the recipients of grace, undeserved favor, spiritual blessings, all for free? Isn't it good that we even can understand that God says he will even reward us but for things which are divinely sourced? How amazing is that? But it's not. <laughs> We're just servants like this parable would say. We don't deserve all of this or earn this. We're just servants and we're doing what would be expected. Think of having drilling rights on your land. Your, your land is your, like your physical body and oil underneath that land. That's what God put there. He created you with abilities and things and opportunities. And these are things that are unique to you. And you can let, you know, an, a, a, an earthly company come in and, and take that oil out and, and it would all be for human good or uh, human wealth that would to go up in smoke. It wouldn't have any eternal value. There's nothing paying forward. Or you could let the God company come in and, and take all that oil and then use that with supernatural value. And you will become enriched and have treasures stored up in heaven and things that have lasting value. And so, this is all of God. Everything's gift. The oil wasn't of you. It was gifted. And you've allowed it to be put into use. Reminds me of Romans 6.13. God appeals to us. Likewise, my brethren, uh, brethren, reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ our Lord. And then verse 13, don't present or put your body members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. That's the way we can be thinking and putting all of what we have at his disposal and no charge. And we're just doing what's because we love you, because you're so worthy of it, because I want to fall at your feet and praise you. That's why we'll toss our crowns at his feet anyway, according to Revelation. So Jesus concludes this long section as we wrap this up with perspective for us on how to think, which is in total contrast to the Pharisee way. The Pharisee life is something we can often be attracted to with all of its checklists and appeal. We can see where we're at and how we're performing. We can have, we can have subtle human merit that somehow is of value and it appeals to our spiritual hustle, the Pharisee life does. Our actions, our service, all with an inward expectation, a little pecking order, a little who's who. We can shame those who fall short. None of it according to our Lord and his grace. That amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Let me finish with a little perspective here in Luke how God does sees things. In Luke chapter 12, in a parable of God, when he's talking, Jesus is talking about his return, he says, be like men who are waiting for your master, verse 36. And when he returns from the wedding, that when he comes and knocks, they may open up to him immediately. And blessed are those servants whom the master, when he comes, will find watching. Assuredly, I say to you, he will gird himself 
and have them sit down to eat, and he will come and serve them. In Luke chapter 12, we see God's perspective on all this. He is going to be the master that actually does serve the servants (laughs) because of his great love and this incredible grace. Blessed are the servants that understand that and are waiting for him. In this parable, we see our perspective. We are just ordinary servants. We've just done what we're supposed to do. And then in Luke chapter 22 and verse 27, we read where Jesus is explaining some things to his disciples, and he says, who is greater, he who sits at the table or he who serves? And the answer, the one who sits at the table, normally. Is it not he who sits at the table, he says? Yet I am among you as the one who serves. God's perspective is he will serve, he will be the master that actually serves us a meal. Our perspective, we're just ordinary servants. We do hopefully what we are to do. And with a relational desire behind it. And yet here, Luke 22, this can be our perspective. This is how our, together with him, we can think. We are here, the one who serves. We're beloved children, but we have this amazing position and privilege, and we willingly respond and serve others. That's who Jesus is. That's what he's like. And that's who we are being conformed to, into his image. Well, shall we pray? Father, we do thank you today for these reminders, even about uh, being a servant and just doing our expected things. May we truly be doing them because we're compelled by your love. We're relationally responding to you. We are coming back like the leper last week and praising you and glorifying you. So we thank you that we have that privilege and that opportunity. Thank you for your grace, which is abounding. It's so different than natural way of thinking. And may you use these words to clarify and encourage our hearts. So we thank you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thanks for listening. And always remember, where the Spirit of God is, there is always hope.